God bless you. You may be seated. Thank you, Brother Dylan. It is truly a privilege to be some small part of this meeting. Um, I have had the privilege in my 45 years of ministry to minister in a lot of settings. I am famous or infamous, take your choice of being the only person ever asked by the general board to preach at a business meeting at General Conference. If you think you've ever preached to a tough audience, try preaching to a bunch of preachers who came to fight and did not expect to have somebody get up and preach to them for an hour and a half. But, (laughs) so in spite of all my different experiences and opportunities, uh, this is one of my very, very favorite places to be. Um, As Brother Kuhn said last night, 43 years ago next month, 24-year-old kid with a 19-year-old wife who had never pastored. Wasn't raised in a preacher's home. Drove into Annapolis, Maryland because God said go. We learned by Braille. We learned by painful experience. In spite of all that, the Lord was very merciful to us. I feel more at home with you than any other group of preachers in the United Pentecostal Church. That is honestly the truth before God. Um, You know, people, over a period of time, they think they know you by your by the anointing uh, people think that what they see in the pulpit is really me it is so far from me that you can't even imagine I am by Briggs Byers personality test an introvert a significant introvert I love caves not natural caves emotional caves spiritual caves I like to hide. I turn my phone off. I don't read my email. Don't respond to text messages. That's just, that's the way I deal with some things. But the anointing of the Lord takes me into a completely different persona, and it's not mine. Uh, It's who he's chosen me to be. I said to a couple of guys the other day, said, I've come to the realization that Barnabas was the son of consolation. Paul was the opposite of that. Suffice it to say, I don't have Barnabas' ministry. I, uh, because I have been where you are, and in my heart of heart still feel like I am where you are, I have not come here to be critical, but Brother Dylan said it, and 
if I have ever stood in this pulpit in an apostolic conference believing with all of my heart that I had a word from God I stand here before you today with that confidence some people are blessed to have a ministry that they're able to say and given the privilege of saying stuff that people like to hear I am blessed with a ministry and a responsibility to say stuff that people never like to hear I don't, I'm not bragging about that it's caused much pain in my life for myself especially for my precious wife who does not like to travel with me any more than she has to because she's very sensitive to people and their feelings and she never leaves a service feeling sorry for me and what I had to go through to say what I had to say she always leaves a service feeling sorry for the people who had to listen to me I wish I was kidding I'm not I don't get sympathy I don't get consolation when I get back to the room usually it's just silence which I appreciate but having been married for 45 years, I will tell you this. Her silence screams volumes. So. <laughs> Praise God. I'm reading beginning in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I don't know what your personal custom is, but it's easier to err on this side. So if you would stand, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning with verse 5. Who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his labor. You may be seated. God bless you. I have studied these principles for a long, long time. I've got literally hundreds of pages of study notes directly and indirectly on these principles desiring to understand them wanting to know how to properly participate with them so that what is promised will happen the most perplexing part of all of this is the watering part sowing is sowing is pretty simple how do you sow there's a better question how do you not sow the scripture says give a little to seven and also to eight because you don't know which is going to be productive if you're only focused on one or two 
ways to build a church, you're probably not having a lot of results. Well, do you, do you focus on children? Do you focus on homeless? Do you focus on door knocking? Do you, do you do Bible studies? What? Yes, 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 yes. And I realize when manpower is small, you have to let the Holy Ghost prioritize in your spirit what He wants you to be doing now. But God will never lead you to focus your entire church on one thing. Some say that knocking on doors doesn't work. If you call it canvassing, maybe not. But if you do what I call spirit-led visitation, because Romans 8.14 says, For as many as are led by the Spirit, they are the sons of God. And one translation put it, For as many as are led by the Spirit, they only are the sons of God. If you have sought God and are willing to be sensitive to the Spirit and trust the Spirit not just to know what to preach or what song to sing, but you're willing to be led of God, you can do Spirit-led visitation and end up at the right place at the right time. Anybody ever heard of R.E. Libby? I'd love to, but can't afford the time. It was between Christmas and New Year's. My mother-in-law, who was an evangelist, was an evangelist, was up visiting us because we had a two-month-old grandbaby, her first grandson, our first son. And I said, uh, glad to have you, but if you're going to be here, you're preaching revival when we have church. You can hold the baby out of church. So on the Wednesday between Christmas and New Year's, I was out following the Holy Ghost and ended up very briefly at Brother Libby's house. He was a milkman. It was 1 o'clock in the afternoon. He had just gotten home from delivering milk on his route. And uh, they invited me in. And four hours later, they agreed to come to church to get baptized and and on Saturday night they walked in the back door with their towels and change of clothes both got baptized that night he got the Holy Ghost right place right time the Spirit's able to help you do that have you been out being led of the Spirit, not had any fruit, of course. It's all part of the process. But you know, not everything I eat tastes good. Not everything I've eaten in my life stays down, but I keep on eating. Not every bed I've slept in is comfortable, but I keep on going to bed and whatever bed's available wherever I am. So the planning part is absolutely essential. Because of World War II, I am, was not raised on a farm. My grandfather, Wright, uh, had a 40-acre farm in the little town of Jay, Florida. 
eight miles to the east. My grandfather Cooley, my mother's dad, had a 40-acre farm back out in the woods in Berrydale, Florida. World War II happened, and my dad joined the Navy the day after Pearl Harbor as an 18-year-old young man and never went home again as far as to live and work. He was the eldest son out of 11, and traditionally, I guess, he would have taken over the farm, but he didn't. Consequently, I wasn't raised on a farm. I am a city boy, 100%. Thank you very much. I love fishing and hunting. Well, I don't really love fishing and hunting. When I have to hunt my ball in the woods and fish my ball out of the water, I don't really love that. But that's the fishing and hunting I do. I'm not a city boy. I'm a city boy. Okay. Praise God. The only wild meat we like to eat is to spice up the hamburger. Well, you haven't tasted the way I cook it, and I'm not going to. Thank you very much. But knowing a little bit about farming, I do know that if you plant seed in ground that never gets any moisture, it doesn't matter how well you sow the seed. It doesn't matter how good the seed is. It doesn't matter how patiently you wait for the seed to grow. There's not going to be a crop if it doesn't get watered. The Lord gave me this verse and in new perspective on this, and I'm now going to preach to you after much study the only possible, for me, the only possible conclusion that I can come to that's reasonable without stretching and twisting the word to try to make something else fit. The only possible definition of what watering is. Most of you can quote it. Psalms 126. They that sow in tears. Shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth. Bearing precious seed. Shall doubt. Less come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Let's pray just a moment because I want you to tune in to what you're feeling in this room. I have been very low key because I did not want you to be able to accuse me of generating through emotion what you're feeling right now. I want you to let the Holy Ghost help you feel how critical and important this is to your Father. Ye ki e kolor rata la rata ta hai. Ye ki e kolor rata la rata ta hai. Ye ki e kolor rata la rata ta hai. Ye ki e kolor rata la rata ta hai. Ye ki e kolor rata la rata ta hai. Ye ki
when we take the, the tears out of this, it is nothing more than attempting to make proselytes to a religion. It is nothing more than trying to build a crowd to build an ego. It's nothing more than trying to build a crowd to build the coffers of a church. There is no pure motive without tears. Hear me please. Do you feel that which is in this room? I'm trembling with it. There is no pure motive without tears. Tearless sowing allows a man to get up and skin hides and brag about it. Tearless sowing allows a man to get up and, 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 and blister. <laughs> blister sinners and Talk down at them how terrible they are and how much they deserve to burn in hell. The Good News Translation says, Let those who wept as they planted their crops gather the harvest with joy. Those who wept as they went out carrying the seed will come back singing for joy as they bring in the harvest. I have I have prayed, I have studied, I have sought God, trying to understand why it is that we are, we're having so little harvest. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I realize that I'm weird, strange. Just put your name on. I don't care what it is. But you know, I hear these guys talk about how great a revival we're having in the world today. You know what a person is telling me when they call what's happening in our movement great? They tell me they've never bothered to look what the Bible says about what great is. They've never studied what's been actually promised to us. The harvest truly is plenteous. I thank God for every one, two, and three. I, I, I have been there with the angel rejoicing over one sinner that repented. And I'm thankful because it's not about the numbers, it's about the individual. But it's also about seven and a half billion people going to hell. And a church full of people with truth. That it doesn't matter enough to that we don't just go through the motions. You know what tears say? Tears say it matters to you. Tears say you've taken ownership of the responsibility. Tears say the outcome of this is important to me. Tears say that. Tears say it. Unwatered seed whether naturally or spiritually, is never going to produce a harvest. We spend time getting the Word from God, but then we don't spend time after we get the Word 
can prayer conditioning our hearts so that we can preach that word with God's attitude, with God's spirit, with God's passion, with God's love. We spend all that time writing out every word carefully, but we don't carefully condition our heart to let the love of God and the compassion of God move through us. The scripture says, when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them. You know what happens to us? We see the multitude in their sin, and our self-righteous anger rises up. Bunch of reprobates. You hear me in the Holy Ghost? Somebody is going to leave this meeting and this will have gotten a hold of your heart and you're going to go home and quit trying to beat the word into people. But you're going to love the word into people and you're going to water that seed and harvest after harvest after harvest is going to begin to to, to happen and people are going to say, what happened? Why? What's so different? What Did did, did they teach you some some new method? Did they teach you some new way to do it? No! They told me the missing ingredient. I haven't been watering the seed. Watering the seed. Watering the seed. Some of you are on word share. Some of you are. I'm not mad at anybody on word share. But I came to the conclusion, my friend, that most of those guys were spending time just yammering back and forth, not spending time on their face getting close to God, not spending time in the book trying to hear what thus saith the Lord, but just yammering, yammering back. And I'm not putting those guys down because even those not on, on social media, that's what we do. We get together. We don't talk about the book. We don't talk about God. We don't talk about revival. We just talk about people and issues. And wonder why our services are bound. Wondering why our altars are locked up. Wondering why things, I don't care if your town is big or small, seed will produce if it gets watered, sown and watered. I don't care. I don't care how, I don't care what the, 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 the religious background of your city is. The seed, the seed will produce if it's sown and then watered. My youngest son has three children and they were living in a house with two bedrooms and so they were needing to try to sell the house and move and their driveway was a little broken up from when they first bought it. It was already like that. So they decided they were going to pave the driveway, make it a little more curb appeal. And and then they decided, well, it's it's about the size of a car and a half now, but we're going to just pave wide enough for two cars. And they did, and the, and the the guy that came in and paved it, he just cleared off a little bit and smoothed out a little bit the dirt around the, what was already there, and he put he put uh, uh, two inches of asphalt down, rolled it out, it looked really good for about two weeks, but on the edges, on the edges of that paving, where the pave, paving was over the dirt, 
about two weeks, all of a sudden that two inches of asphalt began to break up, pushed up, pushed up. And I looked down and these little tiny blades of grass had pushed through two inches of asphalt. There's no problem with our seed. There's no problem with our seed. Don't blame this on on people not wanting this. No, no, no. The problem is we have seed that's never been germinated because it's never been watered. I'm not saying we got to cry all the time. I'm not saying we've got to weep 24 hours a day. But there's just like there's seasons to sow. The Holy Ghost has got to be able to get to us. So there are seasons of watering. Let's pray. Come on, let's pray in here. Come on, let's pray. Let the Spirit of the Lord talk to you. Let the Spirit of the Lord talk to you. When's the last time you've ever wept over a lost person? When's the last time? When's the last time you've wept over a lost person? Come on. When's the last time you wept over somebody that you're teaching a Bible study to? Oh, let me tell you something. If you're sitting t- teaching a Bible study, there ought to be some prayer going on where you're, you're, you're watering the seed that you're sowing in that Bible study. If you want a crop, you can't have a crop just by sowing. There's got to be some watering. Come on. Come on. Come on. I don't know how far I'm going to get today. And that's not important. It's however far the Lord wants to go. If this is it, that's okay with me. Come on. Come on. There's a hardness that comes to the hearts of preachers when you're, when your fellowship is with an organization and I'm all for it, I'm in it. But that's not the point. We get so sidetracked with stuff. We get so sidetracked with stuff and our hearts get hard and our spirits become insensitive. And it all becomes about who's right and wrong. Not about those people out there that are lost. Come on, come on, pray a little bit more. Come on. Come on, Jesus, here I am. I can't do this myself, Lord. I can't do it myself, Jesus. Come on, Lord, you know my heart. I don't even know my own heart. You know my heart. You know the places where it's hard. You know the places where my heart is insensitive. You know the places where my heart's not responding to you, Jesus. You know the the places in my heart where there's no compassion. There's no compassion. Is there any of us sitting here that have no problems? Is there anybody sitting here with no troubles? Is there anyone sitting here with no pain or pressure in your life? I don't think so. But I've got a question. 
when you stand before the living God and he wants to know why you didn't care enough about the lost but Lord I would have as soon as my problems got solved Lord I would have as soon as this situation got taken care of Lord I would have as soon as my life was a little better let me tell you something if you're only going to be involved with the lost when all your problems get solved you're going to fellowship with those in hell that you were supposed to reach Man of God preached to us last night what happens to a church whenever things going right well. They lose their whole focus. They lose their whole momentum. It's all about me. It's all about me. We need to pray one more. Come on, let's pray again. Come on. Some of you don't mean to be resisting, but you're resisting it. There's so many arguments going on in heads in this room right now. I can't even focus on one or two of you to hear what they are. All I hear is all this clamoring of arguments. But, 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 but. Excuses, excuses, arguments, arguments. This is the Word of God. Quit arguing. Receive it. Making excuses. Quit justifying yourself. I got it so bad. I got it so difficult. I got so many problems. Let me tell you what. Are your problems equivalent to the problem a person has who's blind and lost and going to hell and they have no no way, idea how to escape hell? Do we even believe in hell anymore? Do we even believe in hell anymore? Or have we become humanists like so much of other Christianity and we believe that God's so good He's not going to really send anybody to hell? Would you five stand up here for me please? Right here, you five. Just stand up here and face this group. Uh, let's do, let's do you four. Okay, that's good. Four. We'll do four. You four. Come on, just stand up here. Somebody tell me how many this is. When that's all that God could find that would believe Him and obey Him, that's all He saved everybody else. Went to hell. Or you don't believe the Bible. Look at this crowd. Look at this. I have no idea how many's here. Four, five hundred probably. Eight. When that's the, when only eight souls would believe God's word and obey him, that's all he saved. No excuses, no exemptions, no exceptions. But we qualify people in advance. We want people with good marriages so we don't have to counsel so much. We want good kids so we don't have to worry about them embarrassing us at Youth Congress. We, we want people with money so they can help support what we're doing. We don't want... We don't want a soul 
that may embarrass us or they, they may sit on our seats and people look at us and say, what's wrong with you? You got them leak coming to your church? That soul is going to burn in hell forever and ever and ever and ever. And while they stand in jeopardy of that, what do we do? We feel so sorry for ourselves about how bad our problems are. Oh, my problems are terrible. They're terrible. My problems are so bad. Surely God excuses me from being involved with those that are going to go to hell forever. I know this sounds like I'm condemning. I know this sounds like I'm criticizing in some people's minds. But you've got to understand something. This isn't the spirit of criticism. This is a spirit of passion and urgency. This is a burden from the Lord. For your city. For your city. God wants your city to be reached. Let me tell you the measure of a true burden for the lost. Thank you for staying. Just, you can be seated. Thank you. The measure of a true burden for the lost is if you woke up in your town tomorrow morning and in the papers and on the newspaper, in the newspaper and on the radio and other communications media, everybody in your town overnight without your knowledge has suddenly gotten baptized in Jesus' name and received the Holy Ghost, but only one person in your town was lost. First of all, whatever your feeling is about all those people being saved but not in your place, demonstrate your motive. Second of all, if you're Passion and mode burden diminishes even one little bit because everybody in your town was saved but one, you don't have a true burden from God. You don't have a true burden from God. What you're doing is participating in religion. You're just building a religious group. Just somebody you can indoctrinate with your thoughts, your ideas, your, your church's teaching. Has nothing to do with them being saved, with them being saved. Has nothing to do with them knowing Jesus. It has nothing to do with seeing that life come into fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been in this 67 years all of my life. It's, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm not a critical person. My wife calls me positive Peter, but you hear me right now. I'm having the misfortune of traveling the world. And this isn't America and its culture of debauchery. This is humanity all over the world. And I just don't go very many places where there's very many people in any group of people with any true burden for the lost. We're all involved in self, me, my, mine. Wanting to put notches in our gun and have something to brag about at the next meeting. I, I, I don't want to stand before the Son of God who is now God manifest in flesh for eternity. Before Him as a judge with nail prints in His side, in His hands, nail prints in His feet. 
and a face that has been so marred according to Isaiah 52 he was no longer recognizable if the nails left prints in his hands and his feet if the spear left a scar in his side you tell me how big old strong soldiers could beat him in the face for over an hour and leave his face looking perfectly beautiful like some advanced child of these pictures no, if the Lord Jesus Christ walked in this room right now, most of us would scream and turn our heads away in horror at how disfigured his face is. The Bible says that. My, his visage, visage was marred more than any man. And I'm going to stand before that one sitting on the throne with all of those scars in his body who did all of that to, to spare the lost from hell forever and may ask him to buy my excuses. Lord, help me. Jesus. I got to skip a bunch of this. I've got a, I got a word for some of you. You don't know what all the problem. Why all the problems in my life? Why all the stuff going on in my family? Why this? Why that? Here's your answer. Brokenness and the result of tears is so urgent that the scripture says this, Matthew 21, 44. And whosoever shall fall on this stone and be broken, shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Luke 20, 18, verse, same verse. Whosoever shall fall upon that stone shall be broken. But on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. How many of you have children that are not saved today. You didn't have to raise your hands. How many of you had children? You went through periods of time, even if they are saved today, you, you went through weeks, months, maybe years that you feared for their salvation. Yeah. How many of you, how many of you have stood by the bedside of a loved one that the doctors had given up on? You, you wonder why God allows those kind of things to happen to his people? Because he can't get us to fall on the rock and be broken so that we can have enough brokenness to shed tears over the loss. So in order to produce a brokenness so he can get some tears out of us that hopefully those tears will water some seed. Do I need to finish that statement? The stone is falling on us, folks, because that seed we're sowing is good and we're sowing it in faith, but we're stopping there and nothing's happening. So our loving Father, who robed himself in flesh and hung on the cross, he is letting the stone fall on us to break us so that all of the resistance... <laughs> 
to, to that burden, that compassion can come to us so that we will finally shed tears. Because it is presumed that if you're not going to, sh- if, if, if you, if you will at least shed tears over the salvation of your lost loved one who's in jeopardy of spending eternity in hell forever, that, that hopefully, hopefully somewhere in that process, it will transition from just praying for your own to realize that there's a whole lot of people going to hell. Let's pray. Some of us here are so upset with God over what we're going through. All we want to do is ask why, 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 why. I'm telling you why. Because He loves the lost that much. He hasn't promised you comfort. He hasn't promised you ease. He never one time promised you a life free of pain, problem, and pressure. But let me tell you something. If it's just part of life that He lets us go through, you can have peace. But when it gets close enough to home, you will shed tears. Because unwatered seed won't germinate. Unwatered seed can't produce a harvest. Unwatered seed just don't work. So what do we do? We get angry with God. Why are you letting this one backslide? Why are you letting this one go through that? Why is my wife sick? Why is my husband sick? Why are my kids sick? Why are my parents sick? Why, why, why is it so hopeless? Why is it so helpless? Because the stone... Is falling on a church with hardened hearts. And no tears are being shed to water the seed. And the one with the nail printed in his hands. The one who had thorns beating and beating into his skull. The one whose back looks like a plowed field. The one whose face is marred more than any man is saying if I did all of this to show you how desperate their situation is and I can't get you to see it then I've got to let you experience it Jesus name Jesus name Jesus name If the Lord can't get you to visualize them in hell, then He's going to let you visualize someone you care about in hell. Because He's mean? No. He's just the opposite. He's desperate. He's desperate. He shed His blood. He gave His life for their salvation. He gave all of that so they could be saved. But the people He entrusted this saving message too doesn't have hearts tender enough to weep over the seed they're sowing. Please, I beg of you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm not trying to make you feel condemned. I'm not here condemning. I'm not here criticizing. But the Holy Ghost of God is trying to get our attention. The Word 
It's the word. It's the word. It's the word. You can't bypass the word and have results. You can't bypass the word and have results. You can't ignore the word and have results. You can't play religious games and use religious methods and have true results. Every tree that your heavenly father didn't plant, he's going to root up. So all of the converts you make to your doctrine and your religion that's not a product of watered seed, he does He doesn't claim it. He doesn't claim it. And it's not going to make it. You'll eventually find that you can't pastor those people. Jesus help us. This is not a grandstand play. You're going to have to judge this for yourself. I did not want to do this today. I didn't want to do it, but we're not there yet. The Bible teaches there are three dimensions or levels of a burden. Some of you may have heard me talk about this before, but this is the will of God right now. Second Corinthians 5, beginning with verse 6, please, sister. Trust me, there's not any one of these three parts that's easy to hear. Even if it is word. Therefore, we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we, we what? What do we do? We labor that whether present or absent we may be. So there's acceptable labor and unaccepted labor. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body. According to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. What does that mean? <laughs> I've had people say to me, Brother Wright, how have you managed to get such a large percentage of the church involved with souls over the year? Because I preach the Bible to them. Was the one talent man saved? Hello? Was the one talent man saved? He was in the church. He'd been given a talent. Do much is given, much is required. So he was given less. He wasn't even required what the others were required. God didn't expect all of that. But he didn't even do the least. And for time's sake, I'll only read the last verse. Matthew chapter 25, verse 30. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There shall be weeping. And gnashing of teeth. Now, 
I cannot earn my salvation by doing good. I can't. Can't earn my salvation by doing good. No matter how well I dot the I's and cross the T's of our faith, I can't earn my way there. No matter how faithful I am to church and every prayer meeting and pay my tithes, I can't earn my way there. Because Luke 17 says, when I've done all that's been commanded of me to do, I'm to say I'm an unprofitable servant because I've only done what it was, I've been commanded to do. But some of us need to study the book a little closer because God made an investment in us and he is expecting a profit on his investment. And you can take your gift of the Holy Ghost and keep it all nice and clean and proper and try to return it to Him in the end and see if it works because you're going to be called a wicked servant and unprofitable and you're going to be bound hand and foot and cast into the lake of fire forever. Wow. How can that be? Read the book. Well, I've never heard that before. Not my problem. It's not my problem if you haven't ever had anybody with enough guts to preach you what the book says. Oh, wait. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. Next verse. Matthew 25, 41. I'm going to read this one. Then shall he say also unto them, on the left hand... On the left hand, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was a hungered, and ye gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and ye gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and ye took me not in. Naked, and ye clothed me not. Sick, and ye in prison, and ye visited me not. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hungered, or a thirst, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, inasmuch as ye did it not to one of the least of these, ye did it not to me and these shall go away into everlasting punishment you know what the problem is we look at the lost we walk through the mall and see all that weird clothing all those weird lifestyles see all that stuff and what you don't understand is Jesus wants you to see him Jesus wants you to see him. He wants you to treat that person just like you would treat him. Is that in the book or not? But why do we not do that? Hard hearts. Hard hearts. The deceitfulness of sin. But I don't spit. I don't chew. uh, I don't do this. I don't rob banks. I don't kill. I'm a good person. Blah, blah, blah. That's our problem. We've equated morality and sin. The greatest sins Christians commit are not the sins of commission. They're the sins of omission. For he that knoweth to do good and doeth it not to him it is sin. Is it good to love the lost? Is it good to be involved with the souls of mankind? Is it good to have a passion to see them escape hell? Is it good for him that knoweth to do good? Doeth it not 
to him it's sin. Oh, and finally, John 15. I'm the true vine. My father's the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Every branch in me. How do you get in him? Galatians 3.27. First minutes have been baptized into Christ. They've put on Christ. He's talking about people in him. Hello? He's not talking about the sinner. He's not talking about the denominal church member. He's talking about people that are in him. There's only one way in him. Search the book. Genesis 3.27 in Romans 6 says the way into Christ is to be baptized into Christ. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Oh, yeah, I know how we've copped out on this one. Oh, that's the fruit of the Spirit. Really? 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 Is that the best you can do? The way it works with fruit is fruit contains a seed. When you sow that seed and that seed germinates and grows, guess what it's going to produce? Something that looked just like the branch the fruit came off of. The only fruit that a branch can be responsible for bearing is fruit that when it's sown will produce more vines and more branches. It's not fruit of the Spirit. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit. I know you think I'm angry right now. This is not my anger. This, trust me, this is not my anger. This is passion. This is passion. Thankfully you do, but there's a whole bunch that don't. <laughs> every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Get this one down. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I've spoken. That word purge and clean in the Greek is the same exact word. It's the word for prune. Now I'm not a gardener. But I know enough about roses. If you want the bushes to be healthy and look great next year, you've got to cut them, cut them back where it looks like there's nothing left. It produced beautiful roses this year. But if you want it to work next year, you've got to take that very fruitful, very productive rose bush and cut it back. And the principle of growing grapes is this. You can't grow next year's fruit on last year's wood. So the branches that don't produce fruit, he cuts them off and throws them away, waiting the fire. But the branches that do produce fruit, the blessing of producing fruit is, there's some cutting coming to your life to get rid of the dead wood. Did I, is this really in the Bible? Well, if it's in the Bible, surely you've been preaching it to people, right? I mean, it's in the Bible. I mean, this is smack dab in the middle 
of the last three chapters of the last teaching he did to his church just before he was went out and prayed and then was taken captive and crucified. This is the last of it. I mean, how important can this be? This is, this is a part of his last words to the church before he was crucified. How important can this be? Surely you're preaching and teaching all this. Abide in me, verse 4, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in me in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. Greek word there translated much is exactly the same Greek word in, in, in Matthew chapter 9 verse 38 that says, The harvest truly is plenteous. Plenteous and much are the same Greek word. The same shall bring forth much fruit. For without me, Without me, you can do nothing. The word without there in the Greek means separate or apart from, with any kind of gap between you and him. Why? Because fruitfulness is not about labor first and foremost. It's about personal relationship with Jesus. Because the branch isn't supposed to be worried about what's happening out on the end of the, of the branch. The branch is supposed to be concerned about the connection and how healthy it is to the vine. And if I have a healthy connection with the vine, all the good stuff in the vine is going to flow through the branch. And the proof that the connection, the relationship is good is that there will be fruit on the end of the branch. The branch isn't producing the fruit. It's just making sure it's got a right relationship with the vine. But if that branch, maybe it was cold. Maybe the snow was a little heavy this year. Put a little strain on that joint, that connection. And, and it kind of broke it loose. But you can't see it too well with a naked eye. But the husbandman can tell it pretty quickly when it comes time for the grapes to show up. Because it looks like it's connected. But nothing's happening out here on the end of the branch. So it's all about relationship. For without me, you can do nothing, not even one thing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into what? What's the destination of branches that don't produce fruit? The fire. Why? Well, ultimately, it's not because they didn't produce fruit. Ultimately, it's because what appeared to be a good connection, a good relationship with Jesus, in fact, really wasn't. And it's proven by the fact nothing's happening out here. Because if for it to happen out here, there has to be a good connection so all of that life in the vine can flow through the branch. Well, in light of this message, I could go just a little bit farther. I could say brokenness is also a direct product of relationship. Because if I am in love with him, I'm going to love what he loves. I'm going to hate what he hates. I'm glad that doesn't include, totally include marriage because I'd have to start drinking coffee. 
because the, the lady I love drinks coffee. I don't like coffee. I'm still sanctified. <laughs> hey, Bible preaches against strong drink. Easiest way to tell strong drink is it leaves an odor on your breath. Diet Coke doesn't leave an odor on my breath. Neither does iced tea. If I love him, and, and like Paul, I want to know him. Over a course of time, as I learn him, Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, I'm getting the yoke with him, and I learn of him. I'm going to learn what he loves. I'm going to learn what he hates. It's not going to be about rules. It's going to be about pleasing this one that I love. And that I have a connection with. All right. I'm hurrying along here. The second dimension of a burden. We win the lost because they're lost. 2 Corinthians 5.11. 2 Corinthians 5.11. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord we persuade men so if we're not involved with the lost and we're not broken over their eternal destiny maybe we don't know the terror of the Lord there's two places one called Hades the other Gehana not a Greek scholar so the pronunciations I don't guarantee that's my pronunciations According to Strong's little self-pronunciation help. Hades is like the county jail. When you die, that's where you go awaiting judgment. Judgment is like going to court and hearing the sentence pronounced. Then you move to your final destination, Gehana, which is the lake of fire. It's the place of eternal punishment. Both of them are fire. Both of them are horrible. One is temporary, the other is permanent. Before the resurrection of Jesus, Hades had three parts to it. We know according to Luke 16. It had the part called with, with the fire. That's where the rich man went. Then there was this great gulf separating the place of fire and Abraham's bosom or paradise. And that's where Abraham and Lazarus was. But at, resur- at the resurrection, Jesus led captivity captive. All of paradise was relocated after the resurrection into a place Paul visited called the third heaven. That's why Isaiah 5 and 14 says that hell hath enlarged herself. That enlargement took place after the resurrection. That's why the core of the earth is said to be heating up because hell has enlarged herself. So now... Upon death, immediately upon death, the scripture says the spirit of life, which is that power of God that holds soul and body together, immediately goes back to God which gave it. The flesh goes back to the dust from which it came over some course of time. But the soul, which is the real you, is immediately in paradise or immediately in fire, immediately, instantaneously, no Space of time 
or gap in between. The dead are not asleep. Their bodies are. The real them, the soul, never loses consciousness. The lost, immediately upon the soul leaving the body, goes to paradise or Hades, and he immediately begins to burn in fire. Immediately. In my study, I've come to the conclusion, and I don't have time to go through the details of this, that there are seven horrors of hell. I'm just trying to help you to understand the urgency here. Of course, we don't preach about hell much anymore. It's an unpopular subject. And because we don't preach about it, we don't really honestly in our heart of hearts believe God's going to send everybody there. Sorry, I'm not an expert. I'm just a student. And I've chosen to believe the Bible is true. I believe it's the Word of God. And I believe it's the final authority in our lives. And because I believe the Bible's true, I don't have to defend it to you because I'm not an expert. I'm just a student. The Bible's true. I believe that with all of my heart. And because the Bible is true. And because the Bible is true. The lost upon death will go to one of those two places forever. The only difference is after the judgment those that were in paradise are going to be with the Lord Church in New Jerusalem. And those in Hades after the judgment are going to be in Gehana, which is the lake of fire. It is the outer darkness, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? Seven horrors of hell. First is fire, unquenchable. But because it's also called a bottomless pit and a lake, you're not only burning, but you are falling forever now I was a pilot in the Navy and I like to fly but I'm not going to stand like this on the edge of a cliff that goes down 2,000 feet I'm not going to do that I'm not going to stand on the edge of a cliff that goes down 10 feet there's something in me that doesn't want to fall my daughter-in-law asked me the other day Dad, didn't you didn't you Jump out of planes when you were in flight training? No. No, I did not. No, I did not. We went through training of bailing out into this net. There's this little cockpit, and we bailed out of it into this net, and it, I, I fell three feet into this net. And then we did the Dempsey dumpster where they you got in this cockpit, and it went down a rail into a pool and flipped upside down, and you had to get out of there. If you didn't get out of there in a certain amount of time, uh, they did have people there to keep you from drowning, but you, they kicked you out of the flight program. That's the only two times I've ever gotten out of a, a cockpit when I didn't want to be out of a cockpit. Why? I don't like falling. You can bur combine burning over 100% of your body with your flesh being alive again with all of its current sensitivity and your inner fear of falling, those two things by themselves would be enough horror that I couldn't even bear the thought of imagining one of my loved ones forget any sinner there. 
There is nobody in this world that's ever done anything to me or against me so horrible that I would wish that on them. Nobody. Nothing. There is no human being alive that's ever done anything to me that I would want to see them burn and fall forever. I got scriptures, but I don't have time to read them. If that wasn't enough, Abraham said to the rich man, Son, remember the second horror of hell is you're going to have a supernaturally restored memory while you're falling. Your mind will replay in detail every sermon you've ever heard. You will remember the feeling of every pull of the Holy Ghost trying to get you to repent. You'll remember the dealing of every time the Spirit of God tried to get you to make the right choice and you chose the wrong choice. Your memory will have eternity to play over and over and over and over and over again. You'll remember every negative thing you ever said about somebody trying to get you to live right. You'll remember every bad feeling you ever had against anyone forever. And that's only the second horror of hell. Third, the Bible says in several places where their worm dieth not, the fire's not quenched. Scholars believe this worm in this this context probably means your conscience. So your conscience is you not only your mind's not only going to be remembering eternally, but your conscience is going to be grieving over everything you've ever done. Grief, you will live with the grief of your guilt forever and ever and ever and ever. And that's only the third horror of hell. Four. Revelation twenty two eleven says, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He which is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. He that is holy, let him be holy still. In hell, every lust and craving you've ever had that caused you to allow yourself to be enticed and led into sin your body will never stop feeling them in hyper degrees than you ever experienced here. But there will be no way to gain any amount of satisfaction. Your wants that cause you to choose fulfilling them over pleasing God will be hyper in hyperdrive, oversensitive forever. And you will live with the frustration of never one time experiencing any relief from them. I mean, think about it. The rich man said, Father, just one drop. I can't imagine how horrible it must be that one drop of water would be called comfort. But we're trying to make converts to our church and build up a number so we can get elected to an office. 
That's the fourth horror of hell. Number five says this. Revelation 16, 10, 11. The fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of darkness. And his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain. And blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. Repented not of their deeds. Because the darkness hurt. Matthew 22, 13 says. Then the king said to the servants. Bind him hand and foot and take him away. Cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Darkness. Darkness so palpable that it hurts just by itself. Forget the falling. Forget the fire. Forget the memory. Forget the lust. Forget all of that. Forget all of that. Just darkness so real that it hurts, causing you to gnash on your teeth. Number five. That was five. Six. The Bible calls it eternal punishment. And because it's eternal, the sixth, the sixth whore of hell is absolute, perfect hopelessness. I don't care how bad off you are in this world, saint or sinner. The only reason we don't take our lives is because no matter how bad I've got it, saint or sinner, no God or don't know God, it's just a little bit of hope in there that keeps me thinking it, it may get a little bit better. It may, get, But how do you live forever with absolute perfect hopelessness? With the knowledge that this moment is going to be like the next And this year is going to be like the next year. And this decade is going to be like the next decade. And this thousand years is like the next thousand years. And this million years is going to be like the next million years. Eternal. Hopeless. This is my favorite, favorite illustration to use for this. If God attached a sewing thimble. To the leg of a sparrow and commission that sparrow to begin to move the water from off the earth to a distant planet and it took a thousand years for that sparrow to fly to that planet dump out its thimble full of water and fly back by the time that sparrow had emptied the earth of water we will have passed the first moment of the first second of the first minute of the first hour of the first day of the first week of the first month of the first year of eternity. We're going to sow seed and not water them. We're going to sow seed and not water them. And then get all upset because nobody responded. Finally, the seventh horror of hell, which in my personal opinion is absolutely the worst. To save time, I'll just call it what the book calls it. Second death. You know what second death is? 
I don't know how the Lord's going to be able to do this because he fills all space. But the second death is absolute separation from the presence of God forever. I don't know. He's God. He can do it. He said he was going to do it. But the seventh horror and the worst horror of hell is absolute separation. From the presence of God forever. Let's pray a moment if we could, please. I'm trying to hurry. Honestly, I am. Nail prints in his hands. Nail prints in his feet. A back that's been plowed like a field. A scar in his side from a spear. And a face that's been totally marred and disfigured. All evidences of how desperately he wants to spare the lost from hell. All evidences. All evidences of how far he went to give man an opportunity to avoid hell forever. Because hell was created for the devil and his angels. It wasn't even created for you and I. It was only created for the devil. But everybody that prefers the devil's word, the devil's faith, which is fear, the devil's ways over God's ways are going to join him in his place. Even if they don't know that they've chosen the devil to follow. That's why I can't imagine anybody jeopardizing their soul by holding a grudge against anyone. I can't. You, you can't do me wrong enough that I want to hold on to a grudge because you hear me and I don't have time for this. But a grudge is the only sin you can commit that will, that will remove the blood from your past forgiven sins. There is absolutely nothing that you could do to me that is worth me jeopardizing my soul spending eternity in hell and that I am going to refuse to forgive you for it. Nothing. Nothing. You know, it's bad enough to go to hell from a bar stool, but to go to hell from an apostolic pew or an apostolic platform just because I got offended and won't let it go. You're kidding me, right? You're kidding me. It, for To even consider it means you don't have a clue what you're choosing. You don't even understand what's on the line here. Last but not least, the third dimension of the burden. The first dimension of the burden is i got to be involved with the lost so that I can be saved. The second dimension of a burden is then I want to be involved with the lost so that they can be saved. But the third dimension of a burden is the ultimate place to get. It's the hardest place to get because to get there I have got to give up myself. I'm reading, please. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning verse 14. 2 Corinthians 5, 
14. For the love of Christ constraineth us. The love of Christ constrains us. It compels us. The connotation of the Greek word there is, is to, it, it's by force if necessary. Let me, let me read one more place. No, I'm not, I'll, get, I'll do that later if the Lord lets me. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. You know what? The problem with being raised in the church, we didn't have as far to come. When I read where Jesus said, he that's forgiven much loves much, I said, Lord, this, this doesn't seem right. Here I've tried to live for you all my life, and you're telling me I can't love you as much as that rank sinner? You know what he said to me? He said, I wasn't referring to the amount of sin. I was referring to the degree of your awareness of no matter what your sin is, that you were lost and that you, the degree that you realized you couldn't save yourself, that you needed a Savior. So the guy that doesn't see all his bad as all that bad. He can't love Jesus as much as me. I've never smoked, drank, used drugs because he's brought me to the awareness I need a Savior every moment of the day. I will never get so spiritual that I don't need a Savior. I cannot save myself. I need a savior and because I need a savior and he is saving me I can love him much verse 15 and that he died for all get this now that they which live should not henceforth Live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. This is the transition into the third dimension of a burden. This is the transition. We use this terminology. Well, my life, my time, me, I like... Yeah, yeah. My church. Yeah, we use that. But this verse says, I don't have anything. Me and everything that he's entrusted to me is not mine. It's all his. You want to have the kind of harvest that the man Christ Jesus had? then you got to let the man Christ Jesus live through you. I'm coming back to verse 16 if we could. Let's go quickly to Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, 
But Christ liveth in me and the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by, by means of, through the channel of, the faith of the Son of God. Not faith in the Son of God. The faith of the Son of God. Of the Son of God's prepositional phrase of possession. I can turn the noun into the possessive form and say the exact same thing. I haven't changed the word. I, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the Son of God's faith. What was the Son of God's faith? Whatever I hear my Father say, I say. Whatever I see my Father do, I do. Of course, i got to have a relationship with Him to hear Him talking and to see Him working. Reading quickly, Second Corinthians five sixteen. Wherefore henceforth know we him, know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to Himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, take note of this. Know this. That God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us. We pray you. In Christ's stead. Look it up. Check the other translations. We pray you in Christ's place. I'm not talking about God's place. I'm talking about the man. The son of God. I'm a son of God. You're a son of God. We pray you in Christ's stead. Be reconciled to God. Let me tell you something, friend. When you get to the third dimension of burden, it won't be about how big your church is, how many people you got. You'll count for accountability's sake, not for pride and ego's sake. But it'll be all about him and connecting him and them. Now, I purposely felt led to not let this be about a temporary emotional high because in the Holy Ghost I'm looking for something much deeper than a few tears shed by some temporary emotions this is a word from God for you not imply in any way that it's more important or superior to any other word you're going to get here. My participation in these meetings, is, is I've so enjoyed it because God fits all these messages together into one word. This is my part for this day. But hear me, please. When you get frustrated enough, you get tired enough, you get tired of feeling like a failure enough, you're tired of empty seats and fruitless efforts. 
the Holy Ghost is going to remind you that you're trying to reap a harvest from unwatered seeds. And either the Holy Ghost will help you to fall on the rock. Or if you begin to pray out of sincerity, God, I, w- I want to be broken, but I'm not. Help me. He'll fall on you to help you be broken. And I've had people look at me like I was crazy. Why would you pray that? And I look at them like they're crazy. Why would you not? If I'm hardened and there's no, there's no flow of the Spirit manifested in tears in my life to water the seed that I've sown, I'm going to damn condemn myself to either nothing happening or ended up. Because here's the problem. When you try to produce a harvest with unwatered seeds, you're either going to determine to be broken, whatever God's got to do, or you're going to begin to rely on the flesh and begin to use intellect and programs to produce, to build a crowd. And that crowd will stroke your ego and you will feel like you're accomplishing something. But when you stand before God in the judgment and give account for those people, he's going to want to know how many of them did he birth. And how many you produced with a hardened heart and dry eyes using gimmicks, schemes, talent, personality I love music and singing but that's if that's what they're there for they don't belong to him Father by your grace I have obeyed you this day by your grace I have not added to or taken away from this word I have spoken what you've given me to say. This is your word. This is your seed, Father, that you have sown in the hearts and the lives of these that are sitting here, those that are watching online, and those that may watch and hear this message in the future by some other means. Lord Jesus, this is your word, and I trust you with it, and I commit it to you. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, I command that a hedge, an angelic hedge, be placed around this seed that the demons of hell could not come and steal this word out of these hearts before this word can germinate and produce, pr- produce fruit unto your glory, Father, in the name of Jesus. Come on, let's pray. Come on, let's pray. Come on, let's talk to God in the name of Jesus. The Lord's on your side. The Lord is on your side. The Lord sent you. The Lord is trying to help you. The Lord is trying to use you. The Lord is trying to multiply that seed and give you a harvest. We need to water the seed. We need to water the seed. If you can't get there any other way, tell him, Father, help me. 
I don't really want to experience this, God, but if it's necessary, let me see a loved one that's in jeopardy of spending eternity in the seven horrors of torment. Let me see a loved one in that condition so that I can personally identify with how dangerous this is, how horrible this is, how urgent this is, how desperate our cause is. Come on, there's not a lot of emotion in the room, but there's a whole lot of Holy Ghost you're responding to. Come on. Come on. Come on. I didn't come here for you to react to this today. I came here with faith that you were going to take this word home and that God was going to do a permanent work in your heart, in your life. In the name of Jesus. 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 Even that drunk, that sloppy fall down drunk that's humiliated himself and all of his family doesn't deserve to spend eternity in hell even that drug dealer and drug addict that crackhead that crawls around on the floor looking for just another grain of drugs to try to sustain his high he doesn't deserve to spend eternity in hell if somebody would love him That prostitute who sells her body over and over again while she has to check out with her mind just to endure it. No matter what you think of her, she doesn't deserve it. Hell is too horrible. Hell is too horrible. But oh, the seed of life that will spare them from that hell can't just be sown it's got to be watered it can't just be sown it's got to be watered father here i am jeremiah said i wish that my eyes were were, were, were rivers or tear wells and and, and and tears would flow for the slain of the daughter of my people oh jesus jesus lord let my eyes weep your tears so that the seed can be watered and the lost can be saved. Hitler was a horrible man, but I wouldn't even wish hell on Hitler, even though he's probably more than likely there. Yeah. Charles Manson was a crazed fanatic. Horrible person. But I, I wouldn't wish that on hell, hell on him. These serial killers and serial rapists, their sins are unimaginable. But oh, hell is so far beyond that that if the Lord could somehow save them and change them, I'd be happy about it. I wouldn't hold him against, hold it against him if he saved them and didn't send them to hell. Hell is beyond comprehension. Hell is beyond comprehension. Come on, let something rise up in you that says, I will not stand aside and make excuses 
And let anybody in this city that I'm charged with reaching go to hell without giving, without being able to stand before God and saying, Lord, I did everything I could do in you to see them saved.